Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Radio Westeros, House of the Dragon, Season 1, Episode 3, Second of His Name. Hello and welcome to Radio Westeros. I'm Yoke Boy and it's great to talk about the third episode of House of the Dragon called Second of His Name. Today we'll be reacting to and evaluating this episode as well as making plenty of book comparisons because we're all hardcore book fans so you'll get some deep insights related to the text. We will avoid spoiling the future plot of House of the Dragon as much as we can, but we're going to have a spoilers all books section at the end to give our unsullied audience a giant heads up for that. So whatever your Song of Ice and Fire or Game of Thrones background, we do have a lot to offer and we'll certainly be ready to fill in the blanks about lore and story depth that the show understandably skirts over. This episode jumped over three years in the timeline, and the key development from the in-between is that King Viserys is now married to Alicent Hightower, who has given birth to a son and is pregnant with a second child. This new generation obviously puts strain on Viserys' prior decision to name his daughter Rhaenyra as his official heir, which is now at the heart of increasing tension between key players. The showrunners have described this as a sort of coming-of-age episode where Rhaenyra and Alicent are required to leave their childhood behind and several characters need to reevaluate themselves and discover who they are and what they want. I thought it was a fantastic episode. The slow pacing, rather than being boring, felt really indulgent and brought to mind classic 70s cinema such as Barry Lyndon. The show has now established itself as a tense, family-centric drama, and this episode was largely about the shifting dynamics within the key houses following Aegon's birth, with fire and blood action sequences serving as bookends to show us some adrenaline-fueled conflict. So today we have so much to say about this great episode. Without further ado, let's say hello to my Radio Westeros co-host, Lady Gwyn. Hello, yes, we're back. We have lots to say. And back with Emily the Yuri. Thank you. Hey, amazing to be here. Yes, very good. Good to see you as always. And good to see all you uh, folks who are joining us. 
interesting what you said about Barry Lyndon because there was an awful lot of candle lit and uh, fire lit uh, <laughs> scenes going on in this episode, similar to that movie and also that pacing, of course. So good comparison there. But before we begin our analysis tonight, uh, we do want to mention that Radio Westeros is supported by patrons. And if you want to be a patron of the show, you can find us on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Radio Westeros. And we're going to give a quick shout out to the following fine people. Our Flaming Lightbringer patron, TJ Harrington. Our Dragonsteel patron, Peter. And our Palest Milk Glass patrons, Alex, Daniel, Crispy, the Song of Ice, Seth, Kelly, Laura, Sister Winter, Maltu, John Wargarian, and Empty Walls, first of his name, as well as B-Word and Mr. J, the Bear and the Maiden Fair, and Sir Tim of House Jib Jab Hot Dog Shop, house motto, we forge the chains we wear in life. And as a reminder, there will be shout-outs in the outro for anyone who uses the Super Chat option tonight, and thank you in advance for that. And we'll send it uh, over to you, Yoke Boy, to set us up. Why don't we start with King's Landing and the scenes that expose the birth of a new baby boy, and now it's his birthday, it's King Aegon. So, Emily, why don't you get us going there? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like you already said in the intro, you know, one thing we've had to adjust for with House of the Dragon is kind of the amount of time this season covers uh, episode to episode compared to the slower pace of Game of Thrones where you live in every moment and the season is about a year. The third episode opens three years after the events of the second episode, meaning we've already covered four years time in less than half a season. We know from the trailers and the multiple actors for Rhaenyra, Allison, and the Valarian kids that we've got bigger time jumps ahead, but it's worth calling out here, I think, as we start our analysis. Three years is a long time, and it feels like it when we see Allison pregnant with her second child to Viserys. Uh, the war on the Stepstones has been raging for some time, and yet the crab feeder still eludes capture by Daemon, Corlys, and their forces. Rhaenyra is now 17 years old, and the pressures to find her a royal match are growing. All things that we'll cover a lot in the episode ahead. So, as we said, the, we open on the celebration of Prince Aegon's second birthday in King's Landing. The celebration is marked with a great hunt in the Kingswood, and many lords and nobles have gathered to sing the praises upon the young prince and enjoy the hunt and its surrounding festivities. Uh, much like any event where you have so many lords and diplomats assembled, there is plenty of politicking at play. While some, such as Hobart Hightower, Otto's elder brother, uh, expects the hunt to be the moment Viserys finally announces his son, Viserys' son, Aegon, as king, uh, others are more interested in the prospective courtship with the princess Rhaenyra. And throughout the whole thing, you have the awkward undercurrent that's going on about what's to be done in the Stepstones, uh, kind of hanging over uh, that, that event. As we'll see, uh, some people don't want to let it lie, and it feels urgent. So when we open this first scene, all those things get mentioned, all those things are in focus, but Viserys is chiefly focused on where Rhaenyra has gotten off to, and we actually get our first glimpses of what she's been up to. Yes, so three years is a long skip, but thankfully these time jumps have thus far really worked and not been too jarring or confusing. There is, of course, an opportunity cost to leaving chunks of the story out, uh, and here I think the biggest loss is the marriage between Viserys and Alicent, which would have been a major event, and of course the birth of Aegon, likewise. 
But this is a generational family drama and they need to keep things moving in these early stages. Showrunners Ryan Condal and Miguel Sapochnik have said that structure-wise, they were heavily influenced by another generational family story, 100 Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. It's good to know that the showrunners have really given this story a lot of thought and where they can are drawing from literature. So that's a great sign, I think. So why don't we talk about Rhaenyra and Alicent and delve into their early scene at the Godswood. So the last time we saw Rhaenyra and Alicent together was when Viserys declared his intention to marry Alicent. The camera pointed squarely at Rhaenyra to capture the shock at realising her father is going to marry her best friend. Given the three-year jump, the writers had to re-establish this relationship, which had been quite close and positive early on. Now, though, the girls are young women and Alicent has birthed a male heir, one that is definitely going to be favoured as the heir by many important figures in the patriarchal society of Westeros. So the writers brought the pair back to the godswood in a callback to a scene from episode one where the girls were reading a history book and were it was about Nymeria the Roin and they were lost in this reverie and it was just an altogether more innocent time. Now things have changed. Rhaenyra might still be lost in music and the tales of Nymeria, but Alison is altogether more serious. No surprise given she's the current queen and is expecting a second child. The moment that Rhaenyra tells the minstrel to keep playing before Alison outranks her and orders him to leave exposes the beginnings of a power struggle between them. I really like the way they articulated these dynamics via a third party and in such a small minor way. For now, the power struggle in the godswood might seem so insignificant, but with the princess and the queen both being in possession of so much power, what's going to happen when they collide over larger issues? Emily, have you got anything to say about this scene in the godswood? Yeah, you know, I think despite outranking Rhaenyra, at least in the eyes of Samwell the Bard, Alicent really does push for reconciliation between the two. You can tell she's trying to kind of hold all of these conflicting positions she's been forced into together. Her somewhat estranged relationship with Rhaenyra, being queen of the Seven Kingdoms, wife to Viserys, and mother to Aegon, Rhaenyra's biggest challenge to the succession at this point. This taking place in the Godswood, as you said, seems to reinforce the connection to that last bit there. Rhaenyra has no interest choosing to treat Alicent as a distant stepmother rather than the girl that she grew up with and spent many, many hours right here in this Godswood. You can really see Alicent's pain over the conflict on display in this scene with her saying, none of it needs to be this way in truth, Rhaenyra. You feel like she means that. It, this continues the very sympathetic portrayal that we've seen of Alicent so far, something that many book readers might not have necessarily expected. I want to give big props to uh, actor Emily Carey for their portrayal of Alicent here and for bringing such depth to the character that we maybe didn't know a ton about or had preconceived notions about. It'll be interesting to see if such a sympathetic version of Alicent is carried forward into Olivia Cook's portrayal in future episodes. Rhaenyra isn't exactly making it easy for Alicent to want to keep trying. Excellent. It is refreshing to see some new takes on Alison with so many book readers were against her and, and 
here there's a different experience and people are saying different things. So I'm glad that there is extra depth and that the pages of the dry history book are being interpreted by the showrunners and are giving these characters life. So onwards from King's Landing, this episode centered largely on a hunt in the Kingswood. So something I've noticed about House of the Dragon, and we must give the writing team a great deal of credit for this, is that the show seems extremely comfortable in extrapolating a living, breathing visual story from a handful of history book plot points. They know how to fill these gaps with exciting scenes and interesting settings, and like I said, how to fully realise the characters. Today's episode drew very little specifically from Fire and Blood, yet carried its spirit so well. And a major part of, of this feeling was the decision to revolve most of the episode around this royal hunt called together in celebration of Aegon's birthday. This was an elegant solution to the logistical problem of how to bring the ruling families together and encourage drama between them. And it really felt quite authentic as a pseudo-medieval event, I thought. Visually, the aerial shots of the event looked stunning. And like the tourney in episode one, took the conversations out of the sometimes mundane interiors of King's Landing and into a setting that could showcase the decadence of the era. There was a royal pavilion for formal indoor scenes, but the writers were also able to take us out into the wilderness whenever they pleased, which allowed a boar and two stags to influence crucial decisions to complement the continual badgering of Viserys by powerful men seeking to sway him. We'll talk a lot more about the boar and the stags later, but for now I'll say that it's refreshing to see random curveballs such as animals and supposed symbols affect Viserys as much as his advisors. Doesn't this make the characters and the world building more interesting? I, I think so, really. And this was all possible because they took the story to the woods, which became more than just a backdrop. Uh, as I said, it was also a great way to gather the key players together and get a, a lot of important conversations happening one after the other to build the drama of the central storyline. I really felt glued to the screen as the tension of the politicking increased throughout the episode. They did a great job building story on top of the setup of the prior episodes. And I thought with the indulgent Kubrickian pacing that I mentioned, it was really first-rate entertainment. I, I give this a very high mark this episode, and the mood and the atmosphere of the hunt was palpable. We're going to talk about some of the, you mentioned, key players, so we should uh, dive into some of uh, the people who were present. We see one of the first people who has come for baby Aegon's second birthday is Otto Hightower's older brother, uh, Lord Hobart Hightower. Just flew in from uh, from Old Town, I guess, uh, present for the celebration of his great nephew's second name day. He is right off the bat shown to be the driving force be behind Otto's ambition. Uh, no doubt Otto has his own personal ambition, but the birth of a child to a Hightower queen has really brought uh, the older brother's own ambitions for their house into play. And early on, Lord Hobart states that he expects that Viserys will name the boy his heir. When Otto suggests that the king might feel otherwise, the elder Hightower makes it plain that he considers it Otto's duty 
to make sure that the king chooses correctly and there's no doubt what correctly is. Yeah, the showrunners are bringing, I think, a little bit of creativity to bear on the storyline here, which is presented in Fire and Blood as being mostly about Otto's personal ambition. It does make a lot of sense, though, that the head of his house would have an opinion and would, you know, would obviously want the advancement of House Hightower. And I think I mentioned this in our review of episode one. If you take a brief look at the history of House Hightower and their relationship with House Targaryen, you might find some added motivation in uh, the fact that King Magor the Cruel's first wife was a lady, Cerise Hightower. Uh, they were married for nearly 15 years with no offspring. Magor then named her Baron and took Alice Haraway as a second wife, which of course gave great offense to her family. Long story short, he then took yet a third wife. Uh, and even though Queen Cerise was eventually reconciled with her husband and returned to King's Landing. In spite of this, she died shortly thereafter in the capital under very mysterious circumstances, uh, which are detailed in Fire and Blood. So this all happened some three generations before the events in this series. And in Cerise Hightower's defense, uh, I think it appears that uh, King Makor was probably the infertile party in their marriage. So, you know, maybe the Hightowers have been nursing a few generations of stymied ambition paired with having that kind of axe to grind with House Targaryen. So it's Lord Hobart, then, in an attempt to start a public acclamation that really falls slightly flat when when the family arrive in the King's Wood and are dis disembarking from their carriage, who first calls Baby Aegon second of his name. And he gives this little cheer that, you know, a lot of people don't seem to join in on. Viserys just seems a little bit bemused by it all. But anyways, this is the, uh, this is the title of the episode, as well as the uh, pro probably what is the major theme of the series, which is conflict over the succession. So starting with that, we then see Otto take his brother's counsel and kind of attempt a two-pronged approach with his manipulation. First is his proposal to Viserys that he wed Aegon to Rhaenyra. And there's actually some kind of rationality and precedent to what Otto says. By marrying his two children to each other, they would be king and queen together rather than enemy claimants. This would not be the first time that House Targaryen wed brother and sister, King Jaehaerys, the king before Viserys, and his queen Alysanne were siblings as well. And they wed their children, Balon and Alyssa, together. Uh, I can cite many, many more examples. This does sidestep having to pit brother and sister as potential heirs. And after all, uh, in, an incestuous marriage actually brought the realm 50 years of peace somewhat recently through the previous king. So it wouldn't be completely unheard of to try it again. Unfortunately, Viserys, having a few drinks uh, <laughs> at this point in the day, finds this proposal ridiculous. And based on his expression and acting during the conversation, we think most of that reaction is probably due to Aegon's extreme youth at this point. Beyond that, it's not hard to recognize how much Rhaenyra would hate taking baby Aegon to husband, even compared to someone like Jason Lannister. Remember now, Otto isn't someone who gives up easily, so he falls back on more tried and true tactics of soft manipulation, you know, of Viserys using his own daughter as his pawn in an attempt to maneuver the king. 
Once back in King's Landing, he visits a very pregnant Allison in her chambers. He frames Aegon's eventual ascension as an already done deal to her, uh, citing the birthday festivities as proof that the Lords of Westeros will support the male heir. He tells her, when you bore the king a son, you ended 15 years of uncertainty and doubt. Otto claims that Rhaenyra taking the throne over Aegon would tear the realm apart, playing, we think, off of Alicent's anxious nature and perhaps a sense of maternal protectiveness that we haven't gotten a ton of time to see yet, but we can probably infer it's there. Just like Lord Hobart did to him, Otto pushes for the male successor. He treats the succession conflict as guaranteed to happen unless Aegon is named heir. Uh, while Alicent continues to defend Rhaenyra as a good choice for queen and not wishing for her son to steal from his sister, we'll see if that position holds as the seeds of doubt that Otto planted maybe begin to sprout. Yes. So the next uh, sort of players that we see are the, the Strongs. Fans of House Strong finally got to see Lord Lionel Strong's two sons in this episode. Uh, the trio are standing together when the royal carriage arrives at the hunt. And then we see the younger son, Laris, take his place amongst the gossiping ladies in the royal pavilion, since with his clubbed foot, he's unable to take part in the hunt. And the elder son, Harwin, is mentioned by Viserys to Lionel and is present in two other scenes in the Kingswood, uh, but he has no speaking lines. Lord Lionel, though, continues to give the king excellent counsel. And as we'll discuss in a moment, he, it seems to me to be the one member of the small council who consistently gives advice that's honest rather than self-serving, which is pretty refreshing. Uh, so more on that in a few minutes. Uh, some of the other uh, people or significant person, let's say, uh, are potential suitors for Rhaenyra, Viserys mentions that she has to marry in that family carriage scene. And, you know, there, there's kind of a look exchange between him and Alicent, which paired with the comment that she's going to make later on, we get the impression that they have discussed this privately and it's all sort of been planned out behind Rhaenyra's back. And soon, sure enough, soon after they arrive at the Royal Pavilion, Rhaenyra is accosted. Let's go with accosted by <laughs> by this guy, Lord Jason Lannister. As Viserys will say in a later scene, the man's pride has pride. And whether the connection between prides and lions uh, was made intentionally, uh, made this an intentional metaphor or not, I don't know. I took it that way and I loved it. Lannisters have always been portrayed as comically obsessed with lions. And Rhaenyra certainly made note of all the lions on Lord Jason's attire when he introduced himself. So it's... His intentions are pretty obvious right away, except to Rhaenyra, who lags behind just a bit. But there was something in their conversation uh, relative to the book adaptation that I wanted to mention. Jason asks if she's ever been to Casterly Rock, and she says yes, that she went with her mother when she was young. And it's true, in Fire and Blood, Rhaenyra does go to Casterly Rock, although it happens to be some years after her mother's death. And while she's there, both Jason and his twin, uh, Tyland vie for her hand so that they are both present in this hunt uh so i think this is maybe they're you know skipping over the jason in thailand uh competition jason doesn't seem to think much of his twin even though he's serving as the master of ships now uh this is um that was peak realm's delight era for Rhaenyra, the years when all the young men in the kingdom were eager to gain her favor and 
Uh, people were just throwing her, themselves at her left, right, and center. And this reference is just more evidence, I think, just bringing in that little bit of backstory to the care that's being taken with this adaptation, just using all the bits and pieces, whatever way they can, uh, in the script. So if Jason is off the table, who then will it be? Uh, this is when Toronto, fresh from that conversation with his brother, makes uh, makes that great suggestion that perhaps baby Aegon would be the best choice. And of course, with 15 years separating the siblings, Viserys laughs at this till he realizes that he's, his hand is serious, uh, which actually makes him angry. And then, then he really dives into his his flagon of wine at that point. Uh, in Fire and Blood, it's actually Alicent who makes a suggestion, and it's much later uh, in in her marriage to uh, Viserys and also in Aegon's life. Uh, this is where those five years that were added to Queen Emma's life come into play again. In Fire and Blood, Rhaenyra and Aegon are actually only 10 years apart in age, by the time that suggestion was made, Aegon was no longer an infant, but a young boy. And it was actually briefly considered before the king rejected it, mostly because he seemed aware that his uh, oldest daughter and his oldest son disliked each other intensely. Uh, here, it just seems laughable to suggest that a 17-year-old marry a baby. And uh, Rhaenyra really hasn't been shown yet to have any stronger emotion for her half-brother than just simply resentment. Uh, but it is actually Lionel Strong, the good counselor, who suggests Laenor Valerian, which is the first mention of the sea snake's, sea snake's son. Say that ten times fast, please, in this episode. In suggesting Laenor, Lionel takes the opportunity to remind Viserys of the schism with House Valerian, saying the gulf between your houses has not narrowed since I last spoke of it. And he says that his reasoning for suggesting Coralise and Rhaenys' son is the same as it was for suggesting their daughter, which subtly brings the king's focus to the problem of the war and the stepstones, which is a constant undercurrent in these scenes. And is, this is the first, but not the last time, that the tactical error Viserys made by choosing Alicent over Lena Valerian is mentioned. Viserys, uh, perhaps used to everyone around him being utterly self-serving, initially thought that his master of laws might suggest his own heir, Sir Harwin. Um, but Lord Lionel, as usual, is, seems to be about the only person in the room who's genuinely considering what would be the best choice for the realm. <laughs> yes, yes, you are right about that. You know, the last scene that kind of relates to, you know, Rhaenyra's suitors and... and uh the potential options for her is obviously, of course, between Viserys and Rhaenyra herself. Father and daughter discuss her position and her options. It's clear that Rhaenyra is resentful that she must marry. We saw that early on in the carriage, as, as Gwyn said, but is also very insecure in her position as heir, worrying that a marriage is meant to maneuver her into the role of a wife of a great house rather than as future queen. Viserys again brings up the obligation they both share to marry and multiply as monarchs. 
there's been a lot of tension building between father and daughter ever since the last time they were shown in this room together uh, in the small council chamber, where Viserys surprised her with his choice to marry Alicent. It was not lost on me or anyone, I think, the irony of him telling her that marriage is her duty and she must use it to make an alliance and bolster strength, when the last time that they were here in the council chambers on screen, he was pretty much doing exactly the opposite by choosing Alicent over Lena Valarian. Rhaenyra actually makes this point, finally airing a grievance that's weighed heavy on her heart since that scene three years prior. Uh, Viserys admits that he chose Alicent for love over strengthening allies, and seemingly this point gets through to him that she's made. He makes it obvious to Rhaenyra that it has to be someone she has to marry. It's a major plot point that uh, is returned to several times, including when they argue about it in a royal pavilion full of people, and he tells her he's drowned in a lake of parchment. But he really does seem to have her happiness and safety at mind. He isn't stupid, and he knows that it will be hard for her when he dies, and he hopes that she'll have a husband by then who can support her and keep her company. Against the advice of his counselors, uh, he leaves the choice in Rhaenyra's hands. You can see how much this and his promise not to supplant her as heir means to her. Another brilliantly acted scene by both Patty and Millie here. Uh, The scene ends feeling loving and hopeful, you know, time will tell if that promise has an expiration date and if we see father and daughter at odds again. But for now, you know, it just feels good that they're finally kind of seeing eye to eye. So why don't we move on and talk about some more pairings? There's lots of pairings in this episode, but one of the key ones was Rhaenyra and Kristen Cole. So the scenes with Kristen Cole and Rhaenyra depicted two people growing closer together. What you need to keep in mind is that over three years have passed since Rhaenyra chose him for the Kingsguard. She is now a 17-year-old young woman, and he is obviously a handsome young man. As her sworn shield, the pair spend a lot of time together, and of course it's his duty to shadow her almost at all times. So, in the episode, the writers focus on their closeness by bringing both away from the main party and isolating them. Rhaenyra is affected by the threat of baby Aegon to her inheritance and her own identity. And is also, she's also in the throes of a teenage rebellious phase, and we did see some evidence of that early on. She rides off into the wilderness from the main hunt party and the wilderness is not only a dangerous place but it also carries a certain romance. Kristen of course rides after her and although there's no sexual intimacy between the pair here the setting does encourage emotional intimacy. Although she's the royal heir and he's a man of the king's guard sworn to celibacy, there's plenty of room for deep conversations, emotional bonding and hearts to hearts when you're alone together in the forest. So it was no accident that those that you know the writers chose to pair these two off, given that Jason Lannister had previously flirted with and propositioned Rhaenyra quite abruptly, surely making her feel like an objects or expensive chattel it must have been comforting for her to have a trustworthy steady handsome male companion of her own of her own choosing rather to hang out with 
what 17-year-old doesn't want that sort of agency? And from his point of view, you know, he's enjoying the situation too. He speaks of his deep gratitude to Rhaenyra for raising him and his lowly house to a position of pride and envy. They're now known around the Seven Kingdoms. I imagine spending time with a beautiful princess is preferable to his other more mundane Kingsguard duties. This is a relationship that's working both ways and is fulfilling for both parties, I think. The trouble is, where is this road going to lead? There's an obvious attraction, but if the relationship does begin to evolve any further, we're really getting into forbidden love territory. And I was going to say that it's worth considering the fortuitous circumstances that allowed her to pick him as her sworn shield. In episode one, Harold Westerling was a sworn shield, but in episode two, he's named as Lord Commander due to Ryan Redwine's death. This meant Rhaenyra required another sworn shield, and so we see how seeming, even seemingly minor events can create this butterfly effect. In this instance, we're going to have to wait and see what impact this is all going to have on the plot. But I think we can sense that it's going to have some impact. Yes. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> uh, I want to talk about the boar and the stags. You mentioned them earlier. That the uh, the hunt is it features a boar and two stags. Uh, it's probably not surprising because you know it is a hunt in the Kingswood. Uh, they're they're out they're looking for what have you. I think boar. It sounds like from the the uh, conversation at the beginning, but. Uh, I want to say a few words about the symbolism of these animals. Both animals are heavily symbolic in real life and in the story. Viserys' master of hunt tells him that the white heart, or stag, has been spotted, and he then elaborates for the viewer, uh, also for the king, as if he didn't know this, uh, before dragons became the visible sign of kingship in Westeros, the white heart was considered to have this almost mystical connection with kingship. And as someone who was so driven by the power of dreams and portents, as uh, Yoke Boy will be going into more depth about, the heart becomes very important to this episode's arc. Now, this storyline isn't taken from Fire and Blood, but in the After the Episode featurette, Ryan Condal talks about how white hearts are a symbol drawn from real life. It's a theme that's woven in seamlessly and is believably tied in with many of the themes already established in this show, White hearts have meaning in many European cultures and probably beyond, uh, but especially those with Celtic influence. They're usually associated with purity and divine authority. In particular, in Arthurian legend, the white heart often signified the beginning of a spiritual quest and was said to have the ability to avoid capture. So just this sort of endless questing where, you know, it's about the journey, not the destination kind of thing. Conversely, although the act of hunting the White Heart can bring great meaning to a story or a legend, the act of actually capturing or killing one would usually be frowned upon and uh, releasing it if you do happen to capture it is considered the pinnacle of mercy or chivalry. And some of you may remember that in the Chronicles of Narnia, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis included this detail that, uh, the four kids are hunting a white stag, and if they could catch it, it would grant wishes to anyone who caught it and released it. 
So, you know, there is a long history of literary symbolism there. And in fact, in A Song of Ice and Fire, there is also a white heart. Uh, it is also actually connected with a boar. <laughs> so in A Game of Thrones, Robert Baratheon takes to the King's Wood to hunt a white heart that has been spotted there. Robert, you may remember, is hardly on a spiritual quest. He's actually avoiding the conflict that has arisen between his wife and his best friend. But off he goes anyway, and eventually he finds the heart or what's left of it, in this case, in an inversion of the dead direwolf from the first chapter of A Game of Thrones, uh, which had been killed by a stag. The heart had been killed by wolves. Um, never one to lose time in self-reflection, Robert just moves on to the next best thing, chasing a giant boar that had also been spotted in the Kingswood. Boars are another thing altogether. They symbolize strength and aggression and are often associated with war or warriors. And that can be a positive thing, of course. Although in the case of Robert Baratheon, his obsession with just killing something didn't work out very well for him. A lot has been said over the years about that particular hunt and the symbolism there. So to keep the focus on Rhaenyra and Viserys, uh, both of whom are ancestors of Bobby, by the way, uh, let's turn it over to Yokeboy. Yeah, thanks for that background, Lady Gwynne. That's really interesting. I think it's great that the show is delving so unabashedly into symbolism and that the writers are leaving it to the viewers to decipher their own meaning. It's a nice touch and adds thematic depth and gives the show a literary feel that was sometimes missing from Game of Thrones, with the old showrunners famously claiming that themes are for 8th grade book reports. When it comes to interpreting the symbolic meaning of the boar and the stags in this episode, I think there's a few layers to this subtext, each pertinent to different characters. First of all, the sighting of a white heart is said to be a royal sign in the universe, given that it's baby Aegon's name day and that Viserys has already been wrestling with these internal doubts about placing his daughter Rhaenyra at the head of the succession queue Hearing about the White Heart on this birthday must have been a powerful moment for a man who has already been shown to have a penchant for portents. Indeed, the phrase signs and portents is used by the manipulative Otto Hightower to describe the stag's appearance. And of course, those words signs and portents is the name of the book of prophecy written by Viserys' ancestor, Danes the Dreamer. Her prophecies for warning of the doom of Valyria ultimately came true, very accurate. And Thus, signs and portents saved House Targaryen and maximised their interest in prophecy, which is carried down to Viserys, as we've seen already. So, in short, Otto knew exactly what he was doing by planting that seed in Viserys' mind when he said, I've never been one for signs and portents, your grace, but if the gods did wish to show their favour... Yes, very, very... Cunning, Otto. I see what you did there. So this feeds into Viserys' cognitive dissonance about the succession line and leads to him temporarily wavering. Further into the episode, though, a stag is captured Viserys to unceremoniously slaughter, which he does with apparent reluctance, but crucially, it's not the White Heart. 
This is fortunate for Rhaenyra because the symbolism suggested by Otto does not fully come into fruition. Again, this influences the, the flow of Viserys' thoughts and he then doubles down on his original decision to make Rhaenyra his heir, even confessing his doubts and waverings to her. Had the royal hunters captured the White Heart instead, and remembering Viserys' dream about a son ascending the Iron Throne, he might have found it more difficult to defy the signs that were apparently pointing to Aegon. So, there's a layer of symbolism that influences and comments on King Viserys, but I think there's another layer more pertinent to Rhaenyra herself. When attacked by the boar, Kristen Cole first stabs the animal to protect her. Yep, when it stirs again, it's Rhaenyra herself who viciously stabs it to death and then continues to stab and stab it until she's caked in its blood, taking out all of her pent-up frustration on the boar, which had really tried to kill her. So, however, when she sees the mystical white heart, she tells Kristen to let it live. So in one scene, she demonstrates violence and in the other, mercy. The key difference is that the boar was actually threatening her. So what I think this tells us about her character is that she's not actually looking for bloodshed. But if violence is going to come her way, she's more than prepared to defend herself and get bloody and dirty and is certainly not afraid to fight herself. Worth noting that in the family carriage scene, Rhaenyra had expressed that boars do discomfort her. She wanted nothing to do with them. Possibly more evidence that she will not seek out violence or aggression herself. Time will tell to what extent these scenes are going to foreshadow events to come. And with respect to spoilers, I'm going to leave the analysis there and maybe come back to it in our spoilers or book section near the end. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, let's move on to another major theme of this uh, episode, which is Viserys' inner conflict, especially with regard to Rhaenyra, but really with his family in general. His inner conflict is heightened by a specific memory of a specific dream, as he describes it to his wife. Since he self-identifies as a dreamer, this really makes that obscure reference to his ancestor Danes that Yoke Boy mentioned even more compelling. As in the final moments of Emma's life, most of his dealings with both his daughter and his brother, and even the killing of the brown stag, he is simply a man in conflict who cannot be decisive. You know, we see that it's a characteristics that we see uh, in him over and over again. And emblematic of that is his attempt to forge a match 
between Rhaenyra and Jason Lannister, uh, in spite of the fact that apparently his wife told them that his daughter wasn't going to go for it, he went ahead and set up this sort of opportunity. Uh, we, ha- we, you know, we have to assume that there was some sort of permission or tacit approval given for Lord Jason to court Rhaenyra. Uh, but after she strenuously objects not only to the entire process, but to the specific man, Viserys is actually quite cool to Lord Jason when... Uh, he approaches him in the royal pavilion with this gift that uh, I think is meant to be some sort of perhaps, you know, betrothal gift or, you know, so I think it's supposed to be a lot more symbolic than it ends up being perhaps. Well, uh, Jason makes the mistake of offering the strength of House Lannister and Viserys chooses to interpret that as a challenge to Targaryen hegemony And we have to remember that the mythology surrounding House Targaryen at this time, although Viserys professes not to really believe in it in the first episode, uh, is that they are closer to gods than mortal men. And he leans into that in this scene, challenging Lord Jason about his intentions and his assumptions. Is House Targaryen wanting for strength? Do we need Lannisters to shore it up? Uh, Jason then makes matters worse by openly stating what everyone present is thinking, that Viserys is preparing to disinherit his daughter and name Aegon as his heir. Interestingly, Viserys names this rebellion and sternly dismisses Lord Jason, telling him, you know, absolutely not. Uh, I found this very interesting in light of the fact that the overmighty vassal trope is very heavily associated with House House Lannister really from both sides. Some generations later, Jason's descendant, Tytos Lannister, uh, will become the victim of his own overmighty lords, while, of course, famously, as we all know, Tytos's son, Tywin, will be another one such as Jason, only to a much greater degree, as hand to Viserys' descendant, Aerys II. Many in the realm will say that Tywin is the true power behind the throne, and so I, I love the way the show is really keeping those familial traits and themes on point. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think that with the series, they're really taking great care with him to show kind of the emotional depth that he has and show him as a conflicted man who is in a position that really outstrips his own capabilities. You know, I don't know, perhaps you've worked with someone who's been promoted above their their skill level before. He wants to be a good king and cannot necessarily help his weaknesses or shortcomings. One way this is shown is by him flip-flopping on this interpretation of the dream that he has. In episode one, he speaks of it to Emma. And three years later, he tells his new wife, Alicent, that uh, his obsession with the dream killed his first wife. He tried to make that right by naming Rhaenyra and assuming that the dream must have been a false interpretation. But now that Aegon is here and support for him is so ready and obvious, he's back to questioning himself and his dream. It's worth noting that, again, Alicent remains very sympathetic to Rhaenyra and her current position as heir, uh, even throughout multiple conversations in this episode. The entire thing seems to be very focused on Viserys struggling to find his way as king with the succession, with Rhaenyra's betrothal, and even with the hunt. The main thing that is holding Viserys back, I think, from going all in on the prophecy now is that Aegon has arrived, but 
he still loves and wants to do right by Rhaenyra. His guilt over what happens to Emma extends to her, and she remains his strongest connection to his first wife. Whether we interpret uh, his continued support of Rhaenyra as an act of love, guilt, or fear that he misinterpreted a dream, we're kind of unsure, but we end things uh, for this episode with, with Viserys continuing to back Rhaenyra. Excellent. So I, I want to talk about Viserys and Damon. Although we get no scenes of Viserys with his brother, it's obvious that in spite of three years time passing, Damon remains on Viserys's mind. As we said, his brother's war is a constant undercurrent in the episode and really serves as a subplot. It's not going well, and it seems like defeat and possibly even Damon's death might be looming. In spite of the fact that Viserys calls Damon and Corlys malcontents who started a war without his leave, he's obviously brooding about his brother in private. There is a slight difference here from the source material where Viserys is portrayed as content to let the situation in the Stepstones play out. Let Damon play at war, his grace is reported to have said. It keeps him out of trouble. For the benefits the defeat of the pirates would bring to the crown, Viserys even sent what is characterised as regular infusions of gold to his brother. Nor is the war ever portrayed as going anything other than successfully. Clearly, the showrunners want to accentuate Damon's disaffection and estrangement from his brother, which works with the overall portrayal of Viserys as a man in conflict. So I think that these added dynamics are working really well in the show canon. So why don't we talk more about the Stepstones? I mentioned it's a sort of subplot of this episode and it bookends the episode too. So Emily, why don't you take us away with some information about the Stepstones? Sure. This episode opened just like episode two with a harrowing view of how things are going in the Stepstones. It's been three years since then, as we've mentioned, um, and, and you can see that war has has really continued. It's very gruesome, and we get a little hint of the guerrilla tactics that the Triarchy is, tri is employing to survive several years of war against an enemy with dragons, which is no easy feat, really. We see Caraxes in action for the first time, really, setting the, the battlefield ablaze and squishing enemies and allies alike. A horrific reminder of the toll that war, these wars take on the common folk, really, to see someone who's in the process of idolizing and worshiping this heroic, almost godlike image of a Targaryen with their dying breath caused by Daemon. In, indirectly, at least. I don't think that was an order. <laughs> um, following this scene, we, we get a lot of chatter about the Stepstones throughout both the birthday party in King's Landing and the hunt. Uh, Tylan Lannister, Corliss's replacement uh, as master of ships on the small council, is deeply concerned and considers the situation urgent, actually angering Viserys with his refusal to drop the issue at Aegon's birthday party. Uh, as festivities continue, we see snippets of court gossip. The ladies Lannister and Redwine ask Rhaenyra about it, and she's smirked at for being as naive as her father and thinking that the crown is not at war, just Daemon and the Valerians. This is an important lesson for Rhaenyra to learn to see that a uh, ruler's perception of matters being at odds with the realm's perception uh, is a dangerous thing. 
The hunt continues mostly uninterrupted, uh, and it's not until they return to King's Landing and receive a letter from Vaymond Valarian, Corliss Valarian's younger brother, who is on the front, uh, that Viserys is kind of finally ready to consider taking action. He really hits the nail on the head while talking to Alicent, saying, I'm forever doomed to anger one person in the pleasing of another. This is a reference to many things, but uh, this doubt over how he's perceived weighs so heavily on Viserys that it often has him flip-flopping or declining to act at all, as we've already discussed in previous episodes. Uh, It's Alicent who poses the question not on how his actions will change perceptions of him, but on what is best for the realm. And with that, Viserys seems to realize that winning the Stepstones and saving his brother truly is the best thing uh, for his people. All right. So now, uh, how about if we just kind of drill down on Damon and the Valerians in the Stepstones? We go back to the Stepstones uh, at the end of the episode, and that, that scene or segment begins with a war council. Uh, worth all the Valerians present. We get uh, Corliss describing their position very specifically, their limited ships and supplies and exactly how many men they have. And we, we learn a lot more about their grim situation. They're the enemy is hiding in caves to avoid the dragons, uh, making strafing them with dragon fire fairly ineffective. Uh, we get to meet, finally, uh, his son, Lenor, who's mentioned earlier in the episode as a possible match for Rhaenyra. We saw Lenor as a child or background character in episode one, but this is our first glimpse of Theonate, the adult actor. It's revealed that he's a dragon rider, too, assisting his cousin Damon in the Stepstones, and he's very involved in this war council scene, giving his father advice and dismissing his uncle Vaymond as master of complaints and suggesting that they just need to send someone as bait to draw the crab feeder out of his caves. It's heavily implied that the someone he means is Damon, since Damon's arrival with Caraxes just happens to coincide with that suggestion and Vaymond's follow-up suggestion that uh, anyone who would do such a thing must would be a madman. Um, of note... If you watch with subtitles on uh, and have read Fire and Blood, even if you haven't, there's a background character in this scene who is identified in the subtitles as Joffrey Valerion. Uh, That is House Lonmouth Erasure. Uh, He is actually a character called Joffrey Lonmouth. And this is not a spoiler, folks. It's a mistake in the subtitling. Sally McLeod, who's the actor, is identified as playing the role of Joffrey Lonmouth, who is a character from Fire and Blood, and we will have more on him in the spoilers section. Is this why you're wearing a House Lonmouth t-shirt? Because there was Lonmouth Erasure. Yes, (laughs) I have to represent. I mean, one must do as as is required here. (laughs) All right. Well... Before we <laughs> go too far down the lawnmower path right now, I'll bring us back to another Valarian character who's introduced this episode. Vaymond, who is the one who originally sent that letter we mentioned to Viserys, is finally seen on screen alongside his brother Corlys, nephew Lenor, and the Valarian host. His concern about the state of affairs in the Stepstones is merited. Things are dire, uh, as we learn in this council. But his reaction to it is an overreach, and we see him butt heads with Lenar over it, as, as Gwyn mentioned. Throughout this interaction, we get a quick characterization of a man proud, protective of his house, and even doubting the course of his brother, the Lord of the Tides. I should I should point out uh, that 
<laughs> the book version. Vaymond is Corliss's nephew. I don't think that that changes things too much from our perspective here. The whole scene really is consistent with his book characterization, I'd say, but I'll speak a little bit more about that when we get to the spoilers section. Vaymond's cut short by the very extra arrival of Damon, uh, the very man whose leadership he'd just been questioning in front of a crowd. The scene is tense, and as the audience waits for Damon to speak, a messenger shows up with a letter from Viserys. Damon reads it and then attacks its bearer, uh, literally beating up the messenger, which is a recycled plot point missed out on earlier. Uh, We mentioned last episode that in Fire and Blood, Damon nearly killed the messenger who brought the news to the veil of Viserys' wedding to Alicent. Poor Sir Adam was apparently standing in for that guy. (laughs) We keep coming back to them recycling things. They might not use everything from Fire and Blood and they might go their own way, but they do whenever possible. The writers do seem to pull in little details into this world. And, uh, you know, as a as a book reader, you know, that's all it takes to make us happy. Just, you know, throw us a bone. So... (laughs) I'm sorry to Sir Adam. That was very exciting for me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, why don't we? Why don't I talk about the action-packed scene at the end? Like I said, this stepstone subplot bookended the episode. After so much family drama, it was exciting to end on a more visceral action-packed note. It was previously noted by Viserys that Damon would rather die than accept assistance in the matter of war. And boy, he wasn't joking. That was that was a serious comment. The letter Viserys ultimately sends is very conciliatory, speaking of their estrangement and referring to the Stepstones as a common cause, even saying that he prays for his brother's safe return. But as Viserys might have predicted, Damon didn't exactly receive this news with joy. He doesn't want to feel shamed or helped by his big brother. Not Damon. When the Valerian coalition on the brink of defeat is on the brink of defeat and with his brother beginning to step in, the rogue prince must have felt his back to the wall. In spite of Caraxes' ferocity, Kragas Drehar had defied Corlys and Daemon by apparently hiding in the labyrinthine caves along the coast of the Stepstones. With archers strategically positioned up high and the mention of naval choke points, the challenge was to get Crabfeeder and his men into more vulnerable territory out of those caves. This was the only path to a quick victory that Damon really craved. And with his sense of enormous pride on the line, Damon chose to go along with Lenor's plan and to be the bait to draw Drehar out into the open. And Damon's odds of succeeding and surviving here were very unfavourable. This was a straight-up suicide mission, really. Fortunately, though, he does seem to have very thick plot armour at this stage. And as a character, sometimes a brush with death is what it takes for someone to fully understand themselves. Damon ventured solo onto the sands in front of Drehar's cave, waving the white flag. When the foe came to meet him, he feigned surrender before chopping up many of them with his Valyrian steel blade dark sister. So Drehar 
responded by sending out more men and then more men and then more men until half of his army was out on the beach trying to kill Damon. Viewers were being asked to suspend their disbelief here because Damon's invincibility did get a little silly, but, you know, it's an action scene, so I can live with that. And just when Damon was wounded and all seemed lost, Drehar peered up at the sky from behind his harpy mask. A dragon had arrived, and that dragon was Sea Smoke, making his first appearance. And then he bathed Drehar's men in flame, with Corliss and his ground forces entering the fray, the trap was a success and short work was made of the invaders. Damon chased Crabfeeder into his cave and came out with a severed torso, so he killed him off screen. Ryan Condor described the sequence as an anvil for Damon's character, forging him into a new shape and hardening him. The word rebirth was thrown out in the inside the episode featurette, so it will be intriguing to witness a change in Damon going forward. He's now proven himself on the battlefield without his brother's help, and the fact that he used a white flag in such an underhand way demonstrates that he'd do just about anything to come out on top. This is someone who is quite prepared to do things he shouldn't really do and not play by the rules. Yeah, the the, the Rogue Prince is a, an accurate moniker. So one interesting point is, is that aside from his lines in the opening sequence, I don't know how many of you noticed this, the few shouts of, where are you, Drehar? Come and f face me. Apart from those lines, Damon spoke no other lines in this episode throughout those whole end sequences. So it's a testament to Matt Smith's acting abilities that he pulled off this performance with screen presence and facial acting alone. He was so convincing and you almost didn't notice that he didn't speak because he had so much presence. And, and of course... Another laconic character was Crabfeeder. He didn't have a single line in the whole show. And now he is himself crab food. Ordinarily, I think I'd be disappointed with a looming villain remaining so undefined. But here I, I felt it just worked. I can accept Drehar as a non-character serving Damon's character development because this show is not about hideous, ghoulish villains. I think that's plain. Those sort of characters will remain on the periphery in this story as the thrust of the drama and conflict is coming from the dynamics in and around the Targaryen family. This blueprint is what will give House of the Dragon its own unique identity. And this episode was so enthralling, I think it's going to be a very successful strategy. House of the Dragon is not nor ever will be Game of Thrones, although it's in the same world and it feels very familiar, but the tone and the pacing and the actual feel of it are different here. And I think that's going to be viewed as its great strength when all's said and done, cross fingers that they keep up with this great storytelling. Okay, so why don't we do our featurettes now? We do these featurettes every week and you got regular listeners will be familiar with them we do one called dragon watch and one called chample chump let's start with dragon watch so lady gwyn why don't you set us off with dragon watch what did we see today 
This week on Dragon Watch, we see Caraxes and Sea Smoke in action on the Stepstones, with no other dragons mentioned, except for a general discussion of dragons in the scene with Jason Lannister, who seems to think that dragons of the golden variety could possibly buy him a dragon of the human sort. Lannisters. Yeah, they never change. <laughs> so, Emily, what did you think when you saw Sea Smoke? Were you excited? Oh my god, yeah. I mean, we we I kind of knew it was coming because we we saw, you know, we saw Lenor there and taught and heard about the dragons in battle, but to actually see it and to see him so excited and happy uh riding his dragon even as the war below was pretty horrific. Uh I yeah, I was very hyped. I I love Sea Smoke. I'm wearing my the only dragon you need shirt right now and Sea Smoke is the only dragon I need this week. Shout out to Sanrixian for that great shirt design so we were watching it and as soon as sea smoke came on lady gwyn ah sea smoke i wonder how many people out there were the same some of the uh, book readers who have been waiting for you know very excited at the introduction of new dragons so yeah that that was a good moment and like you say emily it was it was very cool to to see lane also excited and having fun Okay, so why don't we do champ or chump? Each week we pick one champ, a a character who's really, you know, won the day, and one chump, a character who sort of made a fool of themselves or let let themselves down in some way. So I'm going to ask Lady Gwen, who is your champ this week? My champ this week is Lord Lionel Strong, the only person on the small council who seems to have the interest of king and realm at heart, as I said earlier. Uh, From not offering up his own son as a possible match for Rhaenyra to gently reminding Viserys that it was he who caused a rift with House Valerian three years ago by marrying Alicent, and that he has the power to heal it now by marrying his daughter to Sir Lainor. He emphasizes the value of his council by saying that his reasoning is exactly the same as it was three years ago for when he suggested Lena. He really pulls no punches, and yet his use of diplomatic language uh, manages to make him come across looking both wise and loyal. So go Lord Lionel. More of that, please. Emily, I'll leave it to you to pick the chump of the week. Who chumped out this week? Uh, so I feel like it's always hard to pick the chump because there's many usually. Gwen, you chose Viserys last week. And so even though he was kind of chumping around, getting drunk and sad uh, this week, I will pick someone else. I'm going to go with Jason Lannister. I know a few people in the chat agree with me on this one uh, for his pompacity with Rhaenyra and just absolutely stepping in it afterwards with Viserys. I know we've talked about it a little bit, but that Lannister pride and braggadocio completely destroyed any hopes he had for that powerful match with Rhaenyra and with House Targaryen. Excellent. So there's our chump. So with Dragon Watch and Chamber Chump out the way, it's time to have a spoilery discussion for those who don't mind getting spoiled or who have read the books. So if you are wanting to remain unspoiled on the future of House of the Dragon and haven't read the books, you you know, thank you for tuning in and now would be a good time to leave because Lady Gwyn, it is Spoilers All Books. Yes. Spoilers all books. To begin with, the first spoiler of all is the title of the episode. It's a spoiler of sorts. 
Uh, they do get around that by having baby Aegon's great uncle declare him Aegon the Conqueror Babe, second of his name at the hunt. But of course, from a spoiler's perspective, this title is really foreshadowing of what's to come, that this baby will be declared king when his father dies. And of course, this episode does a lot of work in setting up that eventual plot point way beyond the title. From Otto's warnings to Alicent about what will ensue should Rhaenyra inherit, the realm will tear itself apart, to Alicent's reluctance to raise her son to steal his sister's birthright, and plenty of rhetoric about a female ruler being against the laws of gods and men, we are seeing this clear theme emerge to pair with Princess Rhaenys's advice that men would rather set the realm to the torch than see a woman ascend the Iron Throne. So uh, the baby, this baby, is actually the fourth child named Aegon to be born to House Targaryen since the conquest. So uh, if you know that, I mean, obviously, second of his name is pretty indicative of something other than just him being a second Aegon. Uh, starting, you had Aegon the Uncrowned, who was the grandson of the Conqueror, uh, who was usurped and killed by his uncle Maegor in a dragon battle near the God's Eye. Uh, uh, Similar scenario, which uh, will come up later in this series. Uh, Jaehaerys and Alicent had a son named Aegon, and Viserys' own short-lived infant brother was Aegon. In fact, actually, when you look at it, it seems like almost every single generation of House Targaryen does have an Aegon. A lot of them, uh, for you know, all those connotations of being named after the, their illustrious forebear, it's not exactly a lucky one for House Targaryen because of as I mentioned, a lot of them <laughs> came to no good end, um, but that's probably a discussion for another time. So suffice it to say here in this episode, from the title to its character arcs and its major themes, uh, we're setting up the principal conflict of the show after spending the first two episodes offering us these kind of red herrings in the form of succession conflicts between Viserys and the Valerians and Daemon and Rhaenyra. Most viewers are probably now realizing that the real conflict is going to be between Rhaenyra and Alicent's children. And speaking of future conflict, since we book readers know how things will turn out between Rhaenyra and Kristen, there's an interesting moment when Kristen witnesses Rhaenyra and the White Heart. When I saw Kristen near the White Heart, I was sure he was going to kill it and the symbolism would rebound to Rhaenyra, although perhaps that would have been too on the nose in retrospect. Book readers know that Cole is eventually going to leave Rhaenyra's side, join the Greens and crown Aegon himself in a move that sets the civil war in motion. In the books, the relationship between Kristen and Rhaenyra is obscured by the fact there are different opinions on what exactly was happening between the pair. But here we see Kristen witnessing what is said to be very plain in universe symbolism, the White Heart, powerful symbol of royalty, appearing to his princess. Conveniently forgetting that might just make his eventual defection all the more painful for Rhaenyra to, and distasteful to viewers. 
So that's Rhaenyra and Kristen. Another part where I had to refrain from giving spoilers is when I was talking about the Godswood scene. As I did say, the friction between the pair about whether the musician should stay or go seemed like a minor moment. But in fact, I think it's highly significant. It's the first time we've seen their pair, seen the pair use their power to try and overrule one another. This small crack in their relationship is going to grow and grow and eventually become an earthquake. So going forward, look out for these moments of increasing tension as the princess and the queen sour on each other. The writers are laying foundations for some huge conflict and I'm loving the subtle and gradual ways they're choosing to do that. Yeah, and uh, okay, so speaking of subtle, this episode subtly introduced a pair of characters who should feature much more in the story going forward, Harwin Strong and Joffrey Lonmouth, not Valerion. Given that the idea of Rhaenyra marrying Laenor Valerion is also introduced in this episode, it's probably fitting that there is a sort of soft entrance for these two in this same installment, since we expect uh, that both are eventually going to have roles to play in that storyline. Joffrey Lonmouth is shown right by Lenor's side during the war council scene, and he's actually the one to pull Damon off that unfortunate royal messenger. In Fire and Blood, he's said to be Lenor's favorite and probable lover, while Harwin Strong, who is seen in several hunt scenes, most notably when he ogles the bloody Rhaenyra striding back into camp with Sir Criston and a dead boar, uh, he is, of course, rumored to be the father of Rhaenyra's three children born during her marriage to Laenor. And completing the complex geometric shape of Rhaenyra's love life, which goes far beyond a triangle, I think it might be a pentagon, actually. Uh, we have Sir Kristen Cole, who is not only rumored to have had a romantic entanglement with his princess, but is also stated plainly to be responsible for smashing Joffrey Lonmouth's skull in with his morning star at Rhaenyra and Laenor's wedding tourney, which leads to Sir Joffrey's death a few days later and Laenor's broken heart. And also in that same tourney, Sir Criston, who plainly had some unspoken aggression on his mind, uh, also broke several of Sir Harwin's bones, leading to him being mocked as uh, break bones. Uh, or broken bones, <laughs> broken bones. Obviously, we uh, expect that this event is going to be covered later this season, uh, maybe as soon as episode five or or six. Uh, one of those two, I would I would think. So uh, don't get too attached to the elusive House Lonmouth. Uh, but uh, I think this is a great setup. I love the way they are gradually introducing characters and dragons and subplots. It really makes watching each episode as a book reader very enjoyable because you can see the shape of the story emerge along with, you know, however they're, um, you know, weaving in new things uh, just for the show. So uh, really cool. <laughs> yeah, kind of going off of, what you're saying there about weaving in characters and subplots uh this week i want to profile a fire and blood character who actually doesn't appear on page until 126 ac about a dozen years after when this episode took place Vaymon valarian uh who is the younger brother of lord corliss in the show was introduced in this episode but again i'll spare you kind of the rehashing of, of what went down we've already talked about that in the non-spoilers section it's clever to have Vaiman show up in an, in an episode where there's a good deal of focus on other second sons, Aegon, Otto, Damon, 
Much of Veyman's behavior in Fire and Blood revolves around the succession crisis of House Valarian following the death of, major spoilers here, Corlys's children, Lena and Lenor. Uh, both of them had heirs of their own, but uh, as we know, the legitimacy of Lenor's children was quietly challenged and gossiped about at court since the first one arrived. So with that, it is Vaiman Valarian, who is actually Corliss's eldest nephew in the Fire and Blood version, who took things a step further, bringing this challenge of the boy's paternity, presumably as a way to make himself heir to House Valarian. When Rhaenyra caught wind of these rumors and remarks, she and Damon acted quickly. Uh, Vaiman was beheaded and his body was fed to Cyrax, uh, Rhaenyra's dragon. As Vaiman's actor, Will Johnson, is only listed to appear in one episode of House of the Dragon, we don't expect to see this moment on screen, but Vaiman's actions in the Stepstones do much to set him up as a character who would take these actions. We may still get a hint of this event down the road uh, should the show decide to instead focus on Vaiman's own sons petitioning Viserys for retribution against Rhaenyra and Daemon. This would be a great moment to include and perhaps is even more relevant to the central plot as Viserys has these Valarian's tongues removed for repeating vile slander against Rhaenyra and Laenor's sons. While Vaymond was right in his assessment about the Stepstones and probably right about Rhaenyra's sons as well, his hot temper and personal ambition set him against the House of the Dragon, and eventually he will get burned. Excellent. And finally today, I want to mention uh, an Easter egg of the week. And that's funny because we did have a super chat from Mills SD, and Mills was asking what are our favorite easter eggs so far and yeah on topic we can answer that because at the hunt lord jason lannister's mother is heard telling the story of lady joanna swan a young woman from house swan in the stormlands who was abducted by pirates from liz and sold to a pillar house there when her uncle refused to ransom her so this was a nice little you know you you barely sort of caught it bit of dialogue between the the gossiping ladies of the court so here's the quote from fire and blood which outlines this part of the the book strahan is lyceni and tyroshi co-admirals seem to be vying with each other to see who was the greediest who was the greediest men complained the lyzini became especially loathed for they claimed more than coin from passing ships taking off women girls and comely young boys to serve in their pleasure gardens and pillow houses among those thus enslaved was lady johanna swan a 15 year old niece of the lord of stonehelm when her infamously niggardly uncle refused to pay the ransom she was sold to a pillow house where she rose to become the celebrated courtesan known as the Black Swan and ruler of Lys in all but name. Alas, her tale, however fascinating, has no bearing on our present history. So yeah, that, that was a really interesting thing to, to pick out for, for book readers who have play, paid close attention. Like I said earlier, they are recycling, throwing little snippets in from the books, uh, and it, it's just it's adding to the, the depth and the world building, the verisimilitude, 
so far as a book reader, I found it a really highly respectful adaptation. And you can tell that the writer's room knows this text like the back of their hand. There's no faking this. They are the real deal. Three episodes in, and I'm willing to to say that, you know, the, these guys really know what they're doing. So massive respect to the writer's room. Okay, so that about wraps it up, guys. And of course, a big thank you to our guest co-host, Emily of the Eerie. Why don't you guys give her a follower on Twitter? It's at Emily of the Eerie. Thanks so much, Emily. But yeah, you can reach us on Twitter at RadioWestros.com. So if you enjoy the show, why not become a patron and support us? So let's end today's broadcast with credits of our Valyrian Steel and Castle Steel patrons. Thanks to all patrons and thanks to any of you that's watched or listened. Thank you so much. I hope you've had a good time and enjoyed our broadcast tonight. Radio Estros is supported by patrons. Thanks to all of you, including our Valyrian Steel patrons. Aileen, Akiva of House Hunt, Aka from Ashai, Oxheart, Amber the Adamant, Anna, Hortense of Ashai, Arshia, Blight Spirit, Archmaester Kobe of the Higher Mysteries, Cabeth the Unfrozen, Marge of the Mage, David, Dean, James K., Lord Sosa and his faithful canine companion Theoden, Jill, Miss Jody, J.M., Herbert Westeros, the Miskatonic Maester, Epimetheus, Juna of House Aiko, Casey, Lady Silverwing, Infendaris, the Unspeakable Terror, Luke, Mark, Boss, Noble Sir Matthew, Sword of the Early Moon, The Sithorian, Sally, Sheila, Tristis Lorian, Wild Child of the Wolfswood, W, Sword of the Evening, and Lady Dyerliz of Castle Naki, the Alpha Patron. And our Castle Steel patrons, AJ, Aegon the Six, the only arsling you need, Alex, Ali B, Ali C, Amber, Ashenot Yara, Oakenfist, Pran the Builder, Brian, Camille, Casey, Charitable Rereadings, Chris, Christian, Maddie and Jessica, Sir Clint the Andal, Sir Duncan Cole, Convenience or Death, Sir Archibald Cadogan, David, Dimitri B, Dennis, Esme, Liza, Emily of the Eerie, Ezra, Felix, Sir Gladworth, Greg, History of Westeros, Brynden B. Fish, Goldie Juke, Jim McGeehan, Winter's King, John Aris, Rider of the Ice Dragon, Scenarion, The White Storm, Julie Bath of Tarth, Judson, Archmaester June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Katie, Lady Kelly, Mistress of the Old Bay of Crabs, Mathos of House Baratheon of Dragonstone, Armed with the Valyrian Sword Malice, Tree Girl, Sir Galahoo of What, Lena Snow, Known as the Twilight Star, Lemba, Liston, Nessie the Questing Beast, Monaro Geek TV, Maria, Margareta, and our cohort of Mats. Matt A, Matt C, Matt K, Matt L, as well as Lady Beatrix of House Grey, Maester Mary, Michael M, Anime Lover Nicole, Nimble Nick One Irick, Patrick, Peter Pebble, PJ, Paul B, Paul H, Richard, Sam, Sarah, Sean, Sir Daniel the Sneaky Russian, Sir Swift the Peppered Knight from the House of Black and Grey, Shari, Cern, Kaiser Susie of the Free Folk, Terry, Sir Terence, Knight of the Cedars, Theo the Cannibal of Casterly Rock, Hama Helminth the Sellsword Sentinel, Valen Valentine, Maiden of the Black Frost, Virginie, Quarren Halfhand, and Yvonne. If you enjoy the podcast, consider being a patron and you could be hearing your name here too. Visit patreon.com slash radioestros for details. Don't forget to like and subscribe. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you all again next week. Bye for now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more 
and it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 